if we do our job right, we save more lives than firefighters and rescue workers. We'll never get a parade, but understand how important what we do every day is to all the mothers and fathers and sisters and aunts and uncles and our babies out there that are living and working in the buildings that we're responsible for. We have a huge impact on society, and we can also create enormous public health and safety issues. So take that seriously. You're listening to Toolbox of the Trades, brought to you by Service Titan, a podcast for top service professionals where we interview leaders for their best tips and tricks of the trades. Learn how industry trailblazers stay ahead of the competition and how you too can be at the forefront of an industry. Let's jump in. Hello, contractors, and welcome to the Toolbox for the Trades. Today, I'm speaking with Wilby Evans, the Safety and Training Manager at Albuquerque Plumbing, Heating, and Cooling, and trainer at the Southwest Training Alliance. Although Wilby is a journeyman in several trades, his passion lies in developing Albuquerque's HVAC and plumbing apprenticeship programs. We spoke at length about the skills gap within the trades, the danger it poses to our communities, and how service entrepreneurs can correct the problem. If you're looking to increase profit profitability, and decrease warranty calls while keeping your techs and customers safe, this podcast is for you. Enjoy. Wilby Evans, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. You are a journeyman in several trades, a contractor, a certified safety and health official, and a real estate trainer, a unique combination that we've never had on the toolbox for the trades before. And I am so excited to chat with you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. So I'm going to start off this conversation the way I do every single one, which is how did you get into the trades? Well, I was raised in a trades family. Uh, My father was uh, originally a journeyman lineman with El Paso Electric, and then he went in and became an electrician. He was a service electrician, and I grew up going to work with him and was in that trade in my teen years. I learned enough electrical trade to know I couldn't work with my dad. So I ended up uh, right out of high school going to work as a pipe fitters helper with my uncle, who was a... Uh, pipeline welder and uh, working in a refinery. And I did that all the way up until I got into the fire department in El Paso, which is what I wanted to do. I was injured on the job. Very brave. I was playing volleyball at Central Fire Station, but it was enough to end my career. So I went back to the mechanical trades and pipe fitting and have stayed in it ever since. So I've got this year will be 30 years in the 30 years in the mechanical trades and then growing up in the electrical trades with my dad. That's awesome. And just for clarification, would you mind sharing the official titles that you go by today and which companies you work for? So I work as the safety and training manager for Albuquerque Plumbing, Heating and Cooling. We co-own together a consulting and education firm that we use to teach outside of Albuquerque Plumbing called the New Mexico Building and Home Safety Alliance. Uh, In fact, you've attended one of the trainings we put on. And so I'm the managing partner for that. And then I am the president of the Southwest Training Alliance, a not-for-profit we started up this year with the same purposes. And the idea is, since we have such a need for training in the skilled trades and workforce development out there, is to be able to apply for grants. And we're in the process of applying for a 501c3 application so that we can do so and try and deliver training in areas that might not otherwise be profitable or not being served I love that. Um, So obviously training a real big passion of yours. I would like to know what was the pivotal moment in your career that really got you passionate about safety and training within the trades? I'd have to say the first time that when I was a firefighter, I responded to a number of 
workplace accidents. And the first one I responded to, a gentleman basically had the bucket from an excavator machine buried in his shoulder and down into his chest. And it, I had grown up around a lot of practices and had previously been in the trades, you know, not paying much attention to safety. And it suddenly became very, very real to me how badly hurt people could get in the workplace. And then just responding to any number of accidents in the home or accidents in general, the general public, it made it very real that this is real. People really die. People are badly, badly hurt. And that made it very real to me. And when I went back into the trades, that just became a big part of my interest. I felt that uh, not just for safety, I also began to understand that what we do in the trades protects the public, not just for safety for our guys working, but what we do has a huge impact on public health and safety. If we do our jobs incorrectly, we can kill people in the mechanical and electrical trades. A hundred percent. You referenced the training of yours that I attended at the Southwest Training Alliance, which was a training specifically for real estate folks who need to know that when you're working with real estate, you should always verify that there are permits and licenses, official documentation that says that the contractor you're working with is trained to do the type of work. And one, one example that you gave that just really hit home for me was this giant explosion that happened in New York City, which is my hometown. Could you talk to me a little bit about what that situation was, share with our audience about what a devastating impact that particular situation had for the residents of this one building? So there was an explosion in downtown Manhattan, and I think that was 2015, I believe. Mm-hmm. I was in New York. I happened to be in New York. When I see news reports around the country of different things happening that I suspect was related to poor workmanship or maintenance in the building, I will track them. And if I ever get to find out the results, then I use them in my training. And this is one that I was able to find out the results. So there was a a pretty good size apartment building, maybe not large by New York City standards, but by anywhere else. And the downstairs had a restaurant in it, you know, and other businesses like is common in in those cities. And um, in the basement, there were people doing work trying to tap a gas line that weren't licensed. They were doing so illegally. The landlord was standing with them. He was trying to get around having to hire an actual contractor that could get the permits and knew what they were doing to save money. They created a gas leak and they immediately ran out of the building and ran away. And if you see the news report that happened that afternoon before the investigation had happened, the owner of the restaurant reported having trying to call his landlord to find out what had happened. But by the time the landlord got there, the explosion had already happened. Well, the landlord would caused it and ran away. Uh, oh my there were criminal charges filed against the landlord. Uh, manslaughter charges because two people died. Everybody was left homeless. The whole entire building collapsed against the landlord. Criminal charges again uh, were against the two unlicensed illegal contractors. Let's call it what it is. It's illegal. It's black market. It's fraud. That's what it is that were trying to do the work. And another contractor who had agreed for a fee to provide his licensing illegally, like to cover what they were doing. And so there was jail time handed out on that. And uh, two people had died. And that's not that uncommon. I mean, we people die or become seriously sick or injured because of conditions and buildings, because of people doing work they shouldn't be doing. 
Thank you for sharing that example. I specifically asked right before we started recording, I was in New York when that happened and it was such a crazy case. It was like, what actually happened? And I remember just hearing it was a gas explosion, but it wasn't until I attended your training that I learned that it was a gas explosion that was caused by illegal work. And I think that those consequences are why your role as a safety and training manager and the work you do at SWTA is so important to the trades. And I've been working tangent to the trades for so long now, for many years. Safety is hardly anything that comes up. In fact, I find that sales training tends to be talked about more than the actual technical training. So I would love for you to tell me a little bit about the state of technical training in the trades today. You know, when is it done well versus when is it clear that corners have been cut and maybe technicians don't have the skills that we think they do? Well, as a general rule, and this is generalized, and especially in the service replacement and repair industry, that's what we're in. You know, you think of the trades as being construction, but there's most of the trades is all the activities for maintaining, remodeling, refurbishing, installing, and repairing buildings after they've been built. That's what we do. And in our field, I would say the state of training is atrocious. There was a time when almost anybody that got into our field had to have spent time in the classroom. I think the best way is a work-study type of situation where like an apprenticeship where you're going to school several hours a week and you're working in that field as you work through that. But somewhere along the line, companies started trying to shortcut that. You know, well, I'll just train them on the job. So a lot of that really got started in the late 70s. I came into the trades officially as an adult in the early 90s, where you learn from a guy who learned from a guy who learned from a guy who learned from a guy. And we've lost a great deal of trade knowledge. And along with that, we're creating environmental problems, energy efficiency problems, and we're creating public health and safety hazards because most people that come in in to interview with us claiming years of experience oftentimes don't have a basic fundamental grasp of the sciences behind our trades or how they work. And that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. One thing you said to me when we first spoke was that experience does not equal skill. And that just hit home for me. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, especially in regards to what you've seen at Albuquerque and trying to hire new, uh, trying to hire technicians on the team and evaluating where their skill level is? Well, oftentimes, you know, you look at someone's resume or they'll claim in, a, in an interview, you know, how many years they've been in the trade. And we tend to think, oh, experience must mean then that they know what they're doing. If they were never properly trained to begin with, then their experience doesn't mean they have the skills they need. They may have been doing something for a very long time incorrectly. So experience does not equal skill. It could if you're practicing the right skills and you're learning as you go. Experience really only equals time. And we've seen again and again people who have had decades of experience that lacked fundamental skills. And the skills that they did have were basically workarounds, not doing things correctly. You know, I've had people come in the trades of 20 years in the trade. You know, I'm in the HVAC. You know, I'm licensed in plumbing and in HVAC and can't, uh, for those of the HVAC folks that might see this, you know, can't explain fundamental principles like what's subcooling and superheat. That's, that's first year of apprentices. And these are 20 year vets. Don't understand it. And. I've met plenty of guys that are installing furnaces and do not understand how to adjust the gas pressures or derating 
which is something you have to do when you're at altitude. We're at 5,000 feet. Guys that have no idea if they're supposed to do that, but will claim because they've been doing it for so long, they know what they're doing. So this is all, you know, equally informative and terrifying for any owner or um, service manager out there, any leader in the trades who may be thinking, oh, crap. I mean, I've always thought that experience equaled skill or X amount of years in the trades meant this person knew what they were doing. What's a good way to assess that a new tech you're bringing into your organization has the skills and knowledge needed to provide service safely? Well, one of the tools we use, uh, we, we will sometimes do a test, a written test of some folks, but we began to be fun, start finding that most folks couldn't even pass the, te- the uh, tests that we were giving them. The majority could not. But we do use, uh, we're a member of the NCCER, National Center for Construction, Education, and Research, and we are a testing center, so we can provide tests to see where someone's at in their trade. And we found most people couldn't pass the tests. That is chilling. <laughs> I don't really know how else to put it. As someone who benefits from the trades, every time I turn on my stove or my water, I get hot water in my shower or I flush my toilet, that is absolutely terrifying. And I just want to leave that there. <laughs> well, I'll give you a real life example. You've got hot water. So for someone who is a homeowner or a tenant, as far as you know, then it's working right, correct? Yeah. So I've actually done, I had to do the death, death investigation for a friend of mine who's now also one of our partners in the SWTA. We figured out her mother was killed by chronic carbon monoxide poisoning from an improperly invented water heater from some guy she hired. Took her two years to kill her, and we didn't figure it out till after she was gone because she was already in her mid-80s. Chronic carbon monoxide poisoning has symptoms very similar to flu and other symptoms that someone of an advanced age may also show. Doctors rarely check for it unless it's like, you know, somebody called 911 and this happened and, you know, we had people passed out, figured out that she had been slowly poisoned by this water heater that was installed in her house. And I've done a number of those types of carbon monoxide death investigations. So just because we're getting hot water, or we turn on the thermostat and we have heat or we turn on the lights and we have light does not mean that that building is safe. If someone with the lack of the correct knowledge and the correct skills has ever been working on that. And most buildings has people like that working on it. You know, we, we all know those three guys. We've all met them. Some of us have hired them. Some of us have been related to them. And some of us at some point in our career have been one of these guys, Billy Buttcrack, Johnny Lunch Bucket and Chuck in a Truck, and they're doing all kinds of work everywhere, and they claim they can do everything. Well, they create a lot of dangerous situations without having the correct job knowledge. Okay, so we've established there is an issue with training. There's an issue with not being properly trained in these skilled trades, and that not being properly trained can result in injury, death, really high stakes here. What are the best options for folks who need training in service and replacement, the kind of trade that you and I you know, are very close to, and also about those who are looking to get into maybe new construction and commercial? Well, new, there is more training for new construction and commercial because most of the community colleges and existing apprenticeship programs focus on that, which oddly enough, though, the majority of the trade is not in new construction, but that's where all the focus is. 
It's everything we yeah. do for the rest of the life of that building in that building. That's where most of the activity happens. Maintenance, repair, replacements, installs, remodels. I have found very useful the NCCER program, which is the National Center for Construction, Education, and Research. They provide uh, the textbooks and everything else if you want to have your own in-house training system. If you're installing specialty equipment, most of the manufacturers put on very good training for their equipment. And frankly, one of the best ways to learn about the equipment, read the manual. It's in there. Most guys, that's the first thing they take out and they throw it away. I know what I'm doing. And they won't read it. Everything you need to know about how to install and adjust and the safety things is in that manual. And many owners, you know, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that all of us owners have always been fully knowledgeable. I owned my own uh, mechanical contracting company from uh, 1999 to 2015. And I routinely had to check what I thought to be true and found out that I had been doing something incorrectly. We have to be humble enough ourselves as owners and managers with many years of experience that maybe what we hold to be true today is not so that we become lifelong learners, make the best decisions we can today with what we, what we know, but be willing to adapt and humble enough to set the example for people also working for us that we're willing to accept new information and adapt. We have to change that, that culture. I love that. And I really want to get into the culture of humility in a moment. But before we even get to that, the reason I was introduced to you is I'm actually in the process right now, we're recording this a bit early, of developing a webinar for Service Titan that is all about what avenues shops can take to grow their own techs. We all know there's a technician shortage out there. We all know people are leaving the trade, more people are leaving the trades than are the, than are entering. And one solution that Albuquerque has done is you guys have developed this giant training school where you are basically growing your own green techs. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you developed that school, that training program, and what lessons you learned in the process of doing that. Well, we knew we needed training and eventually, uh, one of uh, a gentleman that used to work here, he's now since retired, and who was a big part of my upbringing in the trade and training, his name was J.P. Hughes, discovered NCCER. And we found that most non-union uh, training programs are using their curriculum, community colleges, associated builders and contractors, associated general contractors, which we belong to, and quite a few. We happen to be non-union. The unions have great schools, too. The idea is let's get training regardless of where you're at in that world. What we ran into, though, is almost all of the programs that were available to us that we could have sent our guys to were completely around new construction. They were in the evenings, you know, like six o'clock. We can't always guarantee in the service work. You can't guarantee when you're getting all your guys back at the end of the day. It's not a construction site that you can just clock out. Okay, it's time to go. It's five o'clock. Mrs. Olguin doesn't have any water. We have to finish. You know, we're about to lose $10,000 worth of prime rib in this walk-in freezer. We have to finish our job. You know, we have power, a power outage at a restaurant or even a medical facility. We have to finish our job. So we realized we needed something in-house. And so we joined NCCER. And then we went ahead and went through the process to the New Mexico De uh, Department of Workforce Solutions, that's our version of Department of Labor, to become a registered apprenticeship meeting Department of Labor standards. But we tend to have more of a focus on service. We do train the basic skills, but we give real life examples of what we're dealing with every day. And then our technicians, that's our apprentices are working in that field every day. We also meet at six in the morning. 
6 a.m. to 8 a.m. two days a week. Because once they've all gotten on the trucks, you know, we've got 80 trucks and everybody jumps in the trucks and scatters like roaches first thing in the morning. We've all had that apartment, you know, you turn on the lights and they all run away. Oh, yeah. I'm from New York, right? Once in their life. Uh, you know, that's what we do. And we don't know, we, we don't have control of getting every, all those apprentices back at the end of the day. So we had to bring, there are some great programs, but we needed our own system that would meet our schedule and be able to describe real life examples from what we do every day, which is working in existing buildings that creates their own challenges and, and a heavier focus on troubleshooting and understanding and proposing solutions versus working off of a, a set of engineered drawings that you get to do in new construction. Got it. So you had to create a program which you got support from NCCER to get those textbooks, get that curriculum. You figured out, okay, let's do it from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. So this way our guys can come in fresh in the morning, go to school, and then go do their job. Given that there's so many variations in the type of skills technicians have in the industry. Like you said, they all got trained from some guy who got trained by some guy who got trained by some guy. I imagine that everyone's kind of at a different level. How do you tailor the curriculum to fit all of their needs? So we don't, we just, uh, and I even talked to some of the guys, we're getting ready to start. This will be our second year of the apprenticeship and it's still a work in progress. We've got guys coming in that have already been in the trade for five years. And the way we brought that to them, is says, we know you already have some skills. We've seen it in the field. But we also know that because of the way you came into the trade, you probably have gaps in your knowledge. It's free school. All they have to do is pay for their books. And you'll get to fill in things that maybe you missed, you didn't realize you didn't know. And, and they're like, fine. So rather than try and adapt, well, you're, you sh- we can test them and decide, okay, I think you should be at a second or third year. But we're finding... Even experienced guys have been in the trades for years. They hit construction math, and it's they never had that before. And so that's how we kind of sell it. Look, if you're brand new, fine. Never done anything, that's great. If you've already been here for a while, let's be open-minded about maybe some of what you knowledge you have isn't correct, and you've probably missed some training that you needed. And so I've got one guy coming in, first-year apprentice, that's been in the trade for seven years. And he's starting out. Now, we don't hurt them on their pay. Hey, just because you went to apprenticeship, I'm not going to bust your pay down, but he's going to take advantage of that free schooling. And he says, I want to learn stuff I didn't know about. Got it. And what, what does graduation look like? How, how do we get to the point where we feel this technician has got, they're up to speed in terms of technology and safety and the year that we're in, we're ready to let them loose or ready to graduate them. What does that look like? Well, we haven't gotten there yet because last year was our first year and we have two tracks. We have an HVAC track and a plumbing track and they're both four-year programs. Um, Dang. But just because they're in the apprenticeship does not mean that if they demonstrate the skills in the field that they can't be promoted on the other side if they're demonstrating the skills or they can't be allowed to begin to do some work on their own. And in the state of New Mexico, once they reach a certain number of hours that they've been clocked in, they can still go get their journeyman's card before they even finish the apprenticeship, you know, the, the, the study side. We just encourage them to realize that that card meant that you, un, you were able to pass an open book code test, understand you still have skills and knowledge and experience, and we're really trying to push the concept that you're going to need to be a lifelong learner. There's no end to this journey. You finish your apprenticeship, specialty training, you're going to need to come up with new, new technology. You may end up in different, spend part of your career in one 
phase of the field and then you're working on something else that you never worked on before and you're going to have to be a lifelong learner. Yeah. I mean, I think that doctors, nurses, veterinarians, everyone has to be a lifelong learner if you have to keep up with technology, changing human needs, all of that stuff. So it's a four-year track for HVAC and for plumbing. And essentially, regardless of where your technicians at Albuquerque are in that track, they can still get promoted on the side. They can still get their journeyman's card, but you still encourage them to continue on with that track. So they're keeping... um, so that they are embracing that lifelong learner culture. Right. And then we're working with our quality control people at the same time to reinforce what they're learning out in the field so that we, and we're starting to see a difference in our warranty callbacks by making sure that we've got these good ha- uh, good habits in there. And then parallel to our apprenticeship program and all other training, we are doing a great deal of safety training and building that into our quality control systems out in the field that, and we tell the guys, if you're not skilled in safety, you are not skilled in your trade. And we worked, we worked to make them parallel. One should not exist without the other. And I explained to them, workplace safety is to keep you safe while you're there. Your job skills and knowledge is to keep all the people who ever live and work in that building for as long as it's standing, keep them safe. Hey, contractors, right now, homeowners are finding out which of you are using Service Titan. Why? Because Service Titan is software built to deliver the kind of easy, modern experience that lets them book service right in Google search, track technician trucks, and approve no-nonsense digital estimates on the spot. So, contractors, when homeowners recommend the last five-star experience they had with a plumbing, electrical, or HVAC professional, will they be talking about you? Visit ServiceTitan.com to request a software demo today. I really like that outlook on the importance of safety training because I think people tend to be, no one thinks it's ever going to happen to them, right? I don't really have to pay attention to this because I'll be fine. But I love what you just said, which is by taking this seriously, you're ensuring that every person who lives, enters, or works in the building you are working on will also be safe. That really speaks to the tremendous impact the trades has on the community as a whole. Talk to me about the quality control people. So what does that look like? Do you have uh, de- dedicated people at Albuquerque who kind of go out and do quality control on odd jobs? What does that look like? So we have five different departments. So it, it, it's department by department by department needs. So, for example, our residential HVAC department, who also has our highest volume of work because that's how we started out, they have two gentlemen that are in charge of quality control and they they are working towards a system where they can go walk all jobs. We're talking install jobs, not, you know, my furnace isn't working and the technician shows up to fix it, but any install jobs or any significant jobs, it's going to be more than a few hours and try and, you know, make sure we anticipate all the equipment they're going to need, what things might need to be put in place. And then I'm working with them as the uh, safety manager also. Let's recognize any conditions in this building that may present a safety challenge for our guys and let's address it ahead of time. So we can, we can plan ahead what we're going to need to have there for our guys. We did early on. And I've always seen this. Many companies have a pushback against safety. Part of it's a little bit of a toxic masculinity with us guys, you know, Hey, we're, we're tough. We're rough. We're construction workers, rub some dirt in it, move on. And we're proud of how tough we are. But the fact is uh, we've been able to prove, you know, with our uh, CFO that, 
our profitability went up when we started introducing safety, not down. And it really comes down to pre-job planning. You plan the safety in at the same time you're planning all your materials you need and everything else you're going to, equipment you're going to need. You plan it all in ahead of time and safety's cheaper. And we found that warranty, the care it takes to plan for safety walks hand in hand with the care it takes to make sure that we don't have as many warranty calls because who wants to go back and spend money on doing something a second time? No one. And so yeah, we, we finally walk together, but on the surface, a lot of people resist safety feeling like it costs more and it doesn't, it, it, it really doesn't. If you do it correctly, it will save you money. It'll save you on your workman's comp and God forbid, it'll save you from the sleepless nights. If one of your guys ever got killed or seriously injured on the job and, and we've had a near fatality. So, no, I mean, I've heard it too with service Titan customers sometimes. I mean, and not to say that these customers did anything wrong by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, it is a dangerous job. There is danger component to it. So when you talk about adding that safety measure to the pre-job checklist, which includes, okay, what kind of materials are, is this person going to need for the job? What does that look like on the back end? Is there a specific workflow that gets triggered? Is there someone in the department? Is that the quality control people? Do they own that? What does that look like? So right now we're in the process of building the, the safety system there. What it's going to look like is I'm working directly with the people that go out and, and walk the jobs initially, plan it out, starting at the estimating level and training them to begin to recognize certain situations that they might not have thought about that we need to plan for. One of those areas that now we have, and I got a lot of pushback uh, initially when we instituted is hey, if we're going to be doing a crane lift at a family's house, we get the family out of the house. And guys, we can't get our customers to do it. We can't tell them to get out of their house. Watch. So far, customers think it's great. Guys, we just want you out of the house for a minute. Let's get you and the kids out. Why don't you watch the crane lift over here? And they love it. And we say, this is for your protection. And the customers love it. They, they, they eat it up that we're trying to protect them. Once in a while, we run into a customer that doesn't actually care about safety. And they'll, they'll be ugly about it, and we just don't work for them anymore. You know, I've had customers yeah. calling and screaming and yelling because we're not going to get on the roof in 40-mile-an-hour winds, and we just don't serve them anymore. Uh, but most customers we found are very if, – if you can explain why, not that's the rules, but don't tell safety, sell safety. Don't tell quality, sell quality. Don't tell co building codes – Sell it. This is for your protection. This is for your health. This is so your system works better. This will give you maximum efficiency. They love it if you can explain it correctly. But if you go, well, we have to do this because the OSHA and the stupid safety rules, then the customers get the same attitude. Safety sells if you know how to explain it. It's so interesting because it does go very hand in hand with the sales training that I've talked about a lot on this podcast, which is you have to sell the value of these different options. Mm -hmm. And it looks like you have to do the exact same thing for safety. So just to recap, because I'm this is all very new to me, and I'm sure there are some listeners who are also like trying to keep everything straight. So we have our your HVAC and plumbing tracks that are four year, and this is just basic skills training in the trades that most of your technicians have missed because of the flawed training system within the trades. We also have the safety training block. It sounds like we also probably have new technology training in regards to manufacturer stuff as well, right? Is and all there the any other by training? Got it. And it is I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was all the manufacturers provide training and, and I, 
I, I just wanted to add that the one issue in our in the service industry is that safety is almost completely ignored with almost anyone I've ever dealt with in the service industry. And that's what we're in. We're not in construction. I have literally been in different classes over the years with hundreds and hundreds of different safety professionals, never met one out of my industry. And if you look at some of the injury statistics, like out of uh, National Fire Protection Association, we are one of the industries with the highest, highest injury rates. In fact, for electrical industries, the service replacement and repair industry is number one for electrical injuries. But most of us, OSHA doesn't follow us around because we're running around in little one-man trucks all day long. And I even know large construction companies that have a safety department that also have, say, a service department on the side, never touch the service guys, never go over there unless somebody has an accident. And no, I've never found anybody that's really working to figure out the unique safety challenges in the service replacement and repair industry, where we're going into all kinds of different buildings with all kinds of different conditions. It's a custom safety problem every 20 minutes. And Not to mention... Sorry to cut you off, but not to mention, you know, if you're going into a home that someone just bought that had a unit in it already, you have no idea who worked on that unit before. There's a bunch of different hands that could be going in it. So there's all of these different factors that play into how there could be a real safety issue within service and replacement. Yeah, not just for the customer, but uh, I've seen very dangerous electrical circuits before installed by previous people. I've shut down a piece of HVAC equipment before with the disconnect, thinking it's shut off, only to find that someone bypassed the electrical disconnect and there's no way to turn the power off to it. And that's Billy Buttcrack's been working in there, thought that was a good solution to solve, you know, a problem. I've seen customers with fires get started in the wall because somebody solved a, because somebody didn't run the electrical circuit for the HVAC equipment correctly. They piggybacked on the dryer circuit, things like that. And that's, that's a danger not only to people who live there, that's a danger for us when we go to work on the system, you know, electrical shocks and things like that, because I've seen bare wires hanging out in an attic, and we have to be able to watch oh those. It's, it's pretty bad. Whew. All right. So backtracking a bit. So we have our general skills track, our safety track, our manufacturer training. For anyone listening right now who, I think Albuquerque has about, what, 130 employees, something like that? Yeah. That's, so that's for anyone, right. and we've been, that's double what we were in 2016. So we've been on a fast growth track. So for anyone who's listening, who maybe only has 20 employees or five or, or 50 or 300 and are like, Oh, I don't do this at all. What would you say to someone who is listening to this and is now like, Oh crap, I don't do this at all. I probably should, but it just sounds so overwhelming. I don't even know how to get started. Well, I think we have a unique opportunity right now in our bond as Service Titan members to maybe come up with unique solutions within the Service Titan family. I remember being that four-man company. Maybe we can, and this is just, I'm throwing ideas out there. Maybe we can start coming together. It's the reason why we started the not-for-profit and the other company. Can we come up with a way that we can assist each other even, you know, around the country with these things, you know, with modern technology? Can... I'm just throwing ideas out there. Is there a way within the Service Titan community, maybe even Service Titan, can facilitate this kind of cooperation and developing this in their community with the unique challenges we face, not just in my trade, you know, electrical and and the mechanical trades, but all the other services out there? Can we can we come together? I think that's a great opportunity. I I don't because I know how hard it is when you're that small company. What do we do? 
Well, don't be like Albuquerque Plumbing, where we were going along, we were rapidly growing, and then somebody stepped through a skylight and almost died. Don't wait to, for that to be your oh poop moment. Let's start building it in from the ground up early, safety and, and training, and find help. Let's help each other find resources. And again, just calling back to what you said before, safety equals better profitability. Less warranty calls tend to be more profitable on jobs. So it's worth it. We're seeing, you've seen the results firsthand that when you invest in safety, it pays off in dividends. So let's talk a little bit. I actually love that you, you mentioned, like, let's help one another. What happens when, say, you have an apprentice who's in your program, and I know you're only, you only have two tracks, or you're only on two years. What happens if you uh, get someone in your program and they either, one, decide to leave the trade entirely, they're like, this is not for me, or they go work for one of your competitors? if they decide because this isn't for me, then they have a right to, you know, take care of themselves. I just had that happen with my son. He's been in the trade. I, I raised him in the trade and he says, I'm not sure I want to do this. And he, he left. Okay. If he goes work for my competitors. Great. Stronger competitors makes us stronger. Would I rather be competing with another competitor who wants to do the job right and is bidding correctly or compete against Billy Buttcrack that barely has a sign on his truck. It's going to do the job wrong create a danger and undercut us on price, not because he is more competitive, but because he's going to do things that's going to endanger that customer. I'd rather my, my competition be just as strong. We have a saying here at Albuquerque Plumbing, and it's, it's our mission statement. It is the pursuit and commitment, the relentless pursuit of and commitment to excellence for our Albuquerque Plumbing family, one, our customers, and our industry. Our industry needs to be stronger too. If I have stronger competitors, and I mean stronger because they want to do the job right, and they're training their people too, great. Because some of their guys are going to want to come work for me. I want them to be well-trained. On that level, I would welcome my competitors being better, and I don't mind helping them. I think that's a great attitude to have. So if we have any folks listening right now who aren't owners, who aren't already in the managerial parts of a service organization. Say we have some techs listening, some new techs who are like, oh, I didn't even realize that this was potentially a gap in my skill set. I want to learn more. What would your advice be to them? Look in the area that you're in. If your company doesn't have that, you might even have to invest in some of your own training. When I was a technician and, and I worked for guys that didn't believe in training, I watched at the at the supply houses, you know, when they were, I asked, when are you having training? And I would attend the training and I would arrange for, to get the time off. At times I paid for training. I had to for myself. I considered an investment in myself. And uh, I did, I went that route with, and this was the days before YouTube and, you know, where you can get on a, a company's website and, and maybe watch some of their training videos. But I, I did that constantly. I was in every training that I could find. And many of the supply houses have that kind of training. I would caution you to be careful about getting training from some guy on YouTube that's showing you how to do something. Cause that might just be Billy butt crack. Try and get training that's coming from reliable sources and manufacturers. Got it. And again, NCCER is a resource that you found very helpful and we'll list that resource on the website of this podcast and in the show notes. I think that's a great answer. Let's start wrapping up this conversation and talking a little bit about culture, which you mentioned before earlier. You know, you said that we in the trades must be lifelong learners. 
how do you cultivate that type of culture within an organization? I think it has to start with uh, owners and managers first, their ability to be humble and show that that's important to their guys. I think also in how we treat, and I say guys, but you know, we have, there's a lot of women in the trades and that's increasing, which is good. We also have to make sure that we are creating an environment where it's safe to make a mistake that we can learn from. All too often, guys will stand around bragging and they talk about this and that and how that person's a stupid string of dirty words after that, rather than being willing to own up to their mistakes. We have to show that it's a safe environment to say, I don't know something. In many organizations, there isn't a safe environment to admit that you lack knowledge or training in an area, you'll be punished for it. Or someone else is gunning for your job or your promotion trying to make you look bad. We have to create an environment where it's okay to not know within reasonable limits, clearly, but it's okay to to be lacking a piece of information and need help. And I think managers and owners have to take the lead in creating that environment and living by it for themselves, being willing to accept new information and adjust accordingly. Got it. Is there anything we haven't touched upon in terms of creating an apprentice program in-house, a training program in-house, like the logistics that you would really like to share? And granted, I know your program is in New Mexico, and you mentioned at the top of this podcast that stuff varies state by state in the United States, and obviously Canada is a whole different ballgame. But is there any type of logistics that you would like to share, especially looking back and how you first began this program in Albuquerque? Well, you don't necessarily have to have a four-year apprenticeship program. We went that route, you know, for certain reasons. You can go just at NCCER, buy their materials and get trained as a trainer. They'll, they'll show you how. They'll even teach you. So you can just as simply just start giving classes in-house. It doesn't have to be a full four-year apprenticeship program. Or if you don't have the resources to be able to do something like that, and many of us don't when you're small. The owner's working 18 hours a day. I've been there. Start looking around for what resources are available locally. Don't look at it as a, an expense if you have to send guys to a training at a local supply house, for example. Look at it as an investment. Arrange to make sure they're getting that training that is often out there. And, and many owners, oh, I can't do that because you know we're going to miss this many hours of time. It will pay for itself later and reduce warranty and better efficiency out there. So there are resources you can take advantage of now, even if you're small in your, uh, in your local area. Noted. Yeah. And again, just thinking about it as an investment, not as a expense in the, in the moment, any other safety PSAs you would like to use this platform to share? I know you've got a ton of them. Any other anecdotes that you would like to share personal stories? Cause man, will be, I just can't, this has been such a delightful conversation. Again, terrifying, but delightful, very informative. Uh, and I want to give you the opportunity to share something with our audience that you would like to share. Well, you know, you, you mentioned that story to me a few days ago about uh, the, the, the truck driver and his family that all went to the hospital. Yeah. I investigated an incident not that long ago. Family had just bought a house. There was a a real estate broker who was buying houses and flipping them. And she had her guy, I think it was Johnny Lunchbucket, claimed he could do everything. And uh, this guy installed a new furnace in the house. So there is a local hardware store that sells furnaces. I don't believe you should be able to sell furnaces to somebody without a gas license, but they will. And he put the furnace in. He did not understand the sizing of the furnace. He didn't understand the fresh air supply. We call that combustion air the furnace needs. 
And so the furnace immediately started overheating. He knew just enough to be dangerous. And the way he got around the furnace overheating and shutting down on the overheat, you know, locking out the control board, he disabled the sensor, bypassed it. About four weeks later, after the family had moved in, we get called in and uh, grandma is very sick. So this is a family of a single father who is an over-the-road truck driver. So he's only home on the weekends. Grandma, his mother, takes care of the kids during the week. Kids ranging from 11 to 4. Grandma's very sick and so is the four-year-old. I examine the furnace, immediately note that he's bypassed the safety. She says it keeps overheating. It smells like it's burning. I did a carbon monoxide check on it. And the flue gas readings were 800 parts per million plus. Very, very high. And I was getting carbon monoxide just coming out of the vents. What he'd done is he overheated it so fat, badly that he cracked the heat exchanger. So now the flue gases are able to flow right into the regular venting that's coming through your house. Grandma and the four-year-old were very, very sick being exposed to that all day because they were at home all the time. The elementary school age kids were pretty sick, but you know they were getting fresh air during the day and dad was only getting headaches on the weekends. We immediately got them all into the hospital and I assisted as an expert witness on that case, but they almost killed that family. And I've been involved in three different death investigations now in the last few years, too, that involved a death with the same type of thing, somebody doing things. So, guys, if we do our job right, we save more lives than firefighters and rescue workers. We'll never get a parade. But understand how important what we do every day is to all the mothers and fathers and sisters and aunts and uncles and our babies out there that are living and working in the buildings that we're responsible for. We have a huge impact on society, and we can also create enormous public health and safety issues. So take that seriously. That is a phenomenal way, a heartbreaking story, phenomenal way to end this uh, to end this interview, Wilby. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I, again, want to just just say that I think this topic is so important. And when I was first introduced to you from Vanessa, owner of Albuquerque, I was like, yep, we need to talk about this. And I just thank you, thank you, thank you for sharing your expertise on the show. I have a few rapid fire questions that I didn't give you beforehand. Do you mind uh, doing them right now? Sure. All right. I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth, but okay. <laughs> I, I kind of prepped you for one of them, but all right. First thing, how do you take your coffee? Black. If you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? Oh, my wife, definitely. I love date night. <laughs> What's one, the number one thing you're trying to learn more about right now? Uh, right now, I'm studying for my electrical contractor's exam. Oh, yeah, that's right. When is it? Uh, I'll probably sit for it in November. Nice. All right. All right. Good luck. If money weren't an object, so you had unlimited resources, what's the first thing you would do? Uh, build a bigger school. What podcast or book recommendations do you have for the audience? Well, one I'm really enjoying right now is Leadership BS. Who wrote that? That is written by Jeffrey Pfeffer. Huh. We haven't gotten that that recommendation before. I I assume it talks about all the BS things on leadership that are already out there that don't really work. Well, a great, a great deal of it is selling the feel good. You know, you want to, you want to be inspired, but that doesn't, and that's great. Inspiration is wonderful, but it doesn't make any real changes. And so he goes into a lot of that sort of things. I've been heavily influenced by the book, The Goal by Eliahu Goldratt. It introduces a theory of constraints, which we follow here at Albuquerque Plumbing. And um, another book 
co-authored by the same author, the one I just showed you that I think is just a wonderful book for any business owner, anybody thinking going into business is called Hard Facts, Dangerous Half-Truths and Total Nonsense. And it's the idea of managing by actual evidence. We often manage by our gut feelings or things that we hold to be true that may not be backed up by evidence. Got it. I definitely need that 100%. Two more questions. I think I know the answer to this first one. What's your most controversial opinion about the trades? Safety, I think, is the one that I is the hardest to get people to buy into. Yep. What's the number one thing every contractor should do to run a successful business? Learn to understand financials. 100%. Yeah, I didn't realize. I mean, I kind of knew that uh, normally we talk about if you're an, if you were an owner, you owned your own business, we talk about lessons learned and that kind of stuff. But I really wanted to focus this on safety. I didn't realize that you were in business for almost 17 years on your own company. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it regardless of how good you may be at your skill set, if you don't really understand business and accounting and your cash flows, truly understand them, that will be what kills you. Yep. Wilby Evans, thank you so much for giving me some of your time today to share your message about safety and training with the Toolbox for the Trades community. Cannot thank you enough. Thank you for having me. Are you looking to build a top tier service company? Service Titan's Contractor Playbook is a handy guide to help you get where you want to go. Authored by the industry's greatest minds, this free all-in-one playbook will help you set your company up for success. Learn how to provide excellent customer service, establish your company's culture, market to new and existing customers, and more. Just go to servicetitan.com slash get playbook to access the free digital guide. That's servicetitan.com slash get playbook. Thank you so much for listening to Toolbox for the Trades. To make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcast, we'd love if you open the app and leave us a rating. Just tap the number of stars you think the show deserves. See you next time.